You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We're in the middle of a relationship series. We have three weeks left, including this week. We've done all kinds of things from parenthood to general relationships to singleness to how to do conflict. If you missed any of that, it's on our YouTube channel and Facebook page. Uh, today we're doing something that I usually wait till the end. As always, if you have any questions or answers to the questions that I pose, feel free to send them. I'll do my best to check, but I don't always have the opportunity to do that, and I'll try to answer throughout the week if you have that, those will all, that number will always be on the bottom, and it's in your bulletin. Today we're talking about becoming very married. I usually wait to the end to talk about marriage near the end, um, because not everyone is married, but everyone will be in some, everyone, not everyone, but most people will be in some sort of long-term relationship, and so I think this helps, and a lot of principles we talk about today can be applied to all kinds of different relationships, but at some point we talk about marriage during a relationship series. Very Married comes from a quote by Audrey Hepburn. She says, if I get married, because she was pestered a lot by the, by the media, if I get married, I want to be very married, and I just think that sums up exactly with what we're going to be talking about today. I always start off with some bad news, and I got two today. One of them is a small one, and the small one is this, is the Bible has some wild and hard teaching on marriage. And I'll just be honest with you, it's all over the map. Um, if anyone comes to you and say, we need to get back to a biblical understanding of marriage, that person has not read the whole Bible. There's a, there's a couple different understandings of marriage. Like I can go back to Abraham's son, Isaac. His mom just died, and he's like, I guess I need a wife. So he sends a servant out to some random village to find a wife, and they find Rebecca, who's a boss, by the way. Rebecca's the best. And she's like, I guess I'll marry that guy. And she comes back to the village, and they stay the night in his mom's tent, and apparently they're married. That's, there's no ceremony. It was just a sleepover, y'all. And then <laughs> married, right? But then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus has some very strict teaching about marriage. And then Paul has some very hard teaching about marriage. And ultimately, their advice is so difficult that, that the disciples say, who should even get married? And Jesus says, man, if you, can't, if you can go without getting married, maybe you should give that a shot. Like that's Jesus's ultimate advice about marriage. If you cannot, maybe you shouldn't. Paul says the same thing. And so it's hard sometimes to teach about marriage because the Bible uh, talks about marriage in these wild extremes, different ways. There was no ceremony like we have now. There was no priest blessing of ceremonies until the medieval time. You just got married in a courtyard of a church, usually with your friends and family. And maybe if the pastor wasn't being lazy that day, he might come out and pray at the, after you did everything. You solemnized? Solemnized? Thank you. I got the English lit major up here. Help me out. It's just, it's changed, it's grown. I'm going to do the best I can to give us the best advice that we can get. But ultimately, I think the bigger problem is that we live in a contractual culture when God desires covenant for us, which is also the first point. Contracts are about the exchange of goods and services. And this is the kind of culture we live in, very business-heavy, very contractually obligated. We would be mortified if we went to a wedding and it had contractual language in it. 
I did a wedding yesterday. I got to read vows. We would be mortified if we went and the vows said something like, I will marry you if you promise to make 75 grand a year and keep the house clean and make sure. And if you don't do any of those things, I'm out. And I will marry you as long as I'm happy. You make me happy. You provide everything that I need. Take me to Italy three times a year. We'd be so mortified if that's how we got married. And yet, we live in a culture that is so based on contracts that I think we bring that to our relationships. We could bring this contractual understanding to relationships that once I feel like my partner has not lived up to the contract, it's broken, we can do whatever we want, right? And that's not the heart of what God has for us, which is what I said here. Many people live out their marriage in a contractual way. Here's the good news. We're revisiting this passage, and this is the passage where Jesus says, maybe ultimately, singlehood is the best, but if not, here's what he says. Pharisees came to him in order to test him, so they're trying to test him. And they said, does the law allow divorce? Does the law allow a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Women could not initiate divorce. Only men could initiate divorce. Yeah. Jesus answered, haven't you read the beginning? The creator made them male and female. And God said, because this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. And the Pharisees said to them, then why did Moses allow us to get divorces? And Jesus said, Moses allowed you to get divorces to your wives because your hearts are unyielding but it wasn't that way from the beginning. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness and marries another person commits adultery. Yeah, some context here. Adultery is in the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. It's in there. Uh, It was wildly important in this pre-DNA testing time, especially when your culture, uh, you were Jewish because your mother was Jewish, right? This is how they tried to work around these kind of issues, but adultery was a big deal. It still is a big deal, but it was a big deal then as well. Such a big deal that it was in the top Uh, top 10 of the rules that God gave to the Israelites. Rabbis argued about who and how you could get divorced. I think I brought this up earlier, but there were two houses of rabbis, and one of them said, essentially, you can't get a divorce unless there's marital unfaithfulness or death. And the other one said, you can get a divorce for any reason you want. If you find a better-looking spouse, go for it. If they burn your breakfast, that was literally one of them. They They burn the matzah. Let them go. It's time to find somebody else. Any reason, marital unfaithfulness and death. And usually when Jesus steps into these types of rabbinical arguments, he finds a beautiful third way that really encapsulates what God wants for us. Except in this time, Jesus just sides with, I think it's the house of Gamaliel. Uh, He sides with this house over here. He just says, no, it's the strict one. Marital unfaithfulness or death. Those are the only reasons. And so Jesus steps in, and when he's talking about this, this debate that's going on, he sides with the strict one. Because ultimately what God wants us to know is that Christian marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant, not a contract. It's a covenant. Jesus says, because this person should leave their father and mother and be joined together with their spouse, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Humans should not pull apart what God has joined together. What's the difference between a contract and a covenant? Lots of differences. 
and they can be very similar in a lot of ways, but I want to kind of point out some of the differences. One is usually business-related, and one of them is personal. I mean, covenants is about becoming family, kinsfolk, which is the brilliant thing about what God does with us is we're family. We're bound together in family bonds. But that's what covenant is. It's not about we're in a relationship that centers around transactions. We're in a relationship now that lasts forever that cannot be dissolved, family. Contracts are about resources, I just said. Covenants are about relationships. Contracts usually have a time limit on them. Covenants tend to be timeless. Uh, Contracts can be easily broken. There's usually some loopholes, or if someone doesn't fulfill it, it's broken. Covenants can't be broken or are very difficult to break. Again, the beautiful thing about our God is that even when we would break the covenant that God made with us, God was still faithful to us, which is, I could, I got 15 sermons on covenants, y'all. We're just talking about marriage. Contracts are in ink, covenants are in blood. Even when God was making a covenant with Abraham, they cut animals in two. Almost all covenants in the Old Testament revolved some kind of animal sacrifice, and the new covenant in which we live involved uh, the Savior dying. Covenants involve blood. One of my favorite theologians is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. During World War II, uh, he was one of the, he was a world-renowned scholar at the time. He was in America, but he saw what was happening to the Jewish people in Germany. He saw what was happening with Nazism, and he said, I need to go back. And everyone in America was like, are you out of your mind? Do not go back. And he says, if I don't go back to help when the problem is happening, I can't help my people rebuild when the problem is taken care of. I have to go back. And so he goes back. And he starts this, it's called the Confessing Movement, where they denounced Nazism, and they denounced Hitler, and they tried to get the churches to not get on board with the state because the churches were just doing whatever the state was doing. The state said, we'll leave you alone if you leave us alone. And the church said, great, unfortunately. And so he tried to start a movement of churches that said, not great, right? Let's try to put a stop to this. He was involved in a plot to try to, to, to end Nazism. He was taken to prison. From prison, he wrote a bunch of letters uh, and teachings. He's got books. His, probably his most famous book is The Cost of Discipleship, but he's got other ones, Active Being and Creation and all kinds of stuff. But from prison, he writes a letter that involves some advice about marriage, especially when it comes to the covenantal impact. By the way, one month before the Allies liberated Germany and stopped Nazism. He was, he was hanged a month before the war was over. Martyr for the faith. He writes this about marriage from prison. God makes your marriage indissoluble and protects it from every danger that may threaten it from within and without. It is a blessed thing to know that no power on earth, no temptation, no human frailty can dissolve what God holds together. You can now say to each other with complete and confident assurance, we can never lose each other now by the will of God. We belong to each other till death. This is his marriage advice from prison a month before his death. He's writing this out to the people who are receiving his letters. God desires that we view this relationship in a covenantal way and we reject the worldly way of thinking about it, which is contractual. I change it up. You know how I preach head, heart, hands? I'm going to do hands next. And what does God want us to do? God wants us to divorce-proof our marriage any way that we can. 
Jesus says, I say to you, whoever endorses their spouse except for sexual unfaithfulness and marries another person, commits adultery, breaks one of the big ten. It's a big deal. Not, God is not wanting us to do that. Divorce of Christianity, let's just talk about it. Obviously, this is a difficult subject. We all know people who've gone through this experience. It's hard. No judgment coming from me. I'm just sharing what's in the text. I'm just talking about what Jesus is talking about. But I want you to know that difficult subject and uh, no condescension or judgment from here. Traditionally, some divorce was allowed, which also makes this topic because there's just murkiness in it. Moses did allow for divorce, and Jesus says, yeah, there's a couple reasons. Uh, Adultery, death. Oh, I got them here. Adultery, death. That's a pretty good one, right? (laughs) Abandonment. So Paul, who comes later after Jesus and writes to and creates these churches and writes to them and tries to show them Jesus' way, he adds some stuff to Jesus because he just think, I think he thinks Jesus is too hard. And so if you want to know what Paul says, it's in 1 Corinthians 7. And he says, listen, if, if, if your spouse abandons you, feel free, get remarried. He also says, try not to, though. Like, be single as long as possible. It's way better. That's what he, I'm just telling you what he says. Just telling you what he says. He was single. But he says, if your spouse leaves, that they have abandoned the covenant. And there's different reasons why they can abandon it, right? We, we've allowed for all kinds of exceptions, right? Um, but abandonment of the covenant is also grounds. And Jesus brings up uh, illegitimate marriage. If you accidentally discovered that you married too close of a cousin, sister or brother, Uncle, he let you out of it. He's like, God didn't ordain that. You guys messed up, right? He let you out. Those are the reasons in Christianity that we let people out of this. Uh, But ultimately what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to divorce-proof this marriage because he holds it in such high regard. This is the guy that I've been reading. There's lots of other things that help with marriage. I encourage everyone to go to marriage counseling at some point. You don't go when things are falling apart, just like you don't get your oil changed when your car's making brutal noises, right? You, get, you work on this thing. You're divorce-proofing your marriage. Get some work done on it. Uh, but he has this quote, and then he's got seven principles we're going to talk about. I now know that the key to reviving or divorce-proofing a relationship is not simply how you handle your disagreements, but how you engage with each other when you're not fighting. And he's got seven principles. And guess what? I got an extra copy. If you want to read it, this is the seven principles. I won't give you the one my dog chewed. My dog's been chewing on this material. She might be thinking about getting married. I don't know. Seven principles that he has, I'll share with you now. He says this, keep learning about each other. Don't stop learning about, we talked about this before, this idea of love maps, but like when you, when you're with each other, keep asking open-ended questions. What's their most embarrassing moment? Who are their best friends? What are important dates to remember? Keep learning about them. There's always something to learn. They are, your partner is a vast wealth of life experience and knowledge and yeah, just keep, keep figuring it out. Nurture fondness and and admiration, and here it's really about singing each other's praises, thinking good thoughts about your partner, uh, identifying good qualities about your partner. Uh, Really, ultimately, life is a reflection of the thoughts that you have, and this is also true about your relationships, and so positive thoughts about your partner, if you can. If you can, try very hard. (laughs) Turn towards each other. 
This is about uh, taking bids. It's small. It's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be big. In fact, his whole thing is like, we thought it was big things. We thought it was how big your fights were. He said, actually, what I learned is it's the small things. And so when someone says, hey, look at the sun coming out today. It's just coming through that tree. It's beautiful when your partner says that. Instead of going, this is the dumbest conversation I've ever had. Be like, yeah, it reminds me of that time we took a trip to Eureka. Remember when we went to Fort Bragg and the sun was coming through? Remember that? And then you're turning towards each other. You're not ignoring each other. You're not disrespecting each other. You're not staring at your magazine while they're trying to have a conversation. You're accepting the offer to have communication. You're turning towards each other. Small, small way. Let your partner influence you. And what he talks about here is, is learning from each other, not having condescension or contempt for one another, sharing responsibility and sharing decision-making, sharing power. This is going to be very helpful. The Bible talks about it this way in Ephesians 5.22, that we submit to one another. We can learn from each other. Solve your solvable problems. The things that affect marriage affect most relationships, and they're pretty common. You're not unique in this aspect. You're going to have work stress. You're going to have in-laws issues. You're going to have money trouble. You're going to have physical intimacy issues. You're going to have housework sharing arguments. If there are children involved, it will be a thorn in your flesh that the Lord will do a mighty work through, I promise. These are solvable problems that every relationship has gone through before you. Solve your solvable problems. Get that counseling like we were talking about. Read some books. You are doing the work here. Overcome gridlock. This is about you're not easily solvable problems. And these usually resolve around deeply held beliefs about how relationships should go that you formed maybe even in childhood. The napkin should be folded this way. The toilet paper should go this way. I wanted to be in a relationship that traveled, right? I love spending time with people, and I just want to stay home. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, I just want to stay home all night, right? Like these are, they feel, feel like gridlock. I, I, why are we saving our money? Let's just blow some of it. Versus like, versus like we need to save every penny, Right? These can become gridlock issues, and there's deeper ones, and there's harder ones. And the key to overcoming gridlock is just learning to talk about it, not solving it. Uh, you are moving from good talk, gridlock to good talk. You just have to be able to talk about it without it being such a hot issue. You might not solve it. You can learn to respect the differences in the other person. You could try to find compromise. But at the end of the day, you just have to be able to approach the topic without getting heated about it. That's going to be key. Lastly, his seventh one, create shared meaning. Create shared meaning. It can be small as doing like rituals in your home. At Halloween time, I put, uh, I, have a, I have a fishing line that connects to a spider that every time you open the door, the spider comes down. My kids love it. I got it at the dollar store. I did it with my family. My mom came over and she was like, you guys are still doing this? Something small like making holidays a big deal or passing on family traditions, but also uh, rooting your identity in relationship that I am my spouse's partner, right? I am my wife's husband. This kind of thing can be helpful when you're creating identity and uh, meaning. 
but ultimately coming up with some shared goals that you're working towards that can be really helpful. Finding symbols that are important to your relationship. Maybe it's the ocean. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's your backyard. Whatever it is, uh, these are his seven steps to making marriage work. Again, if you want to borrow a copy, I have one. What does God want us to feel in the midst of this? What does God want us to feel in the midst of this topic? And we are wrapping up. If you have questions, send them. God wants us to go from malnourishing to flourishing. Jesus replied, Moses allowed you to divorce your spouses because your hearts are unyielding. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. God has a big vision for you. Again, my guy, again, John Gottman. Lots of other things you can use. He's got a thing called the magic six hours. Uh, this should be in some seat backs behind you. And if it's not just around this wall, there's a table that has more of these. And it's six hours to a better relationship. And most of these work with any relationship. And they start like this. Make sure when you're parting from each other and you're coming back to one another, you make a big deal about that. Say hello. Make some eye contact. Give each other a hug. If you're in an intimate relationship, big smooch. You know what I mean? Thanks. Thanks for laughing. I don't know how to say that. I don't talk about kissing often from the pulpit here. Partings and reunions, big deal. Make them a big deal. Don't walk out the door in silence. Don't come home frustrated and upset. If you need to take a minute at the door, is there anything better than just sitting in your car at your driveway when you pull in, just listening to some music, knowing, knowing that you're about ready to walk into some chaos? You're like, just lean it back a little bit. Maybe just park down the street. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Partings, reunions, big. Appreciation and admiration. You are, he says, use a journal. I'm not a big journal guy, but if you are, just you're, you're thinking positive thoughts. You're coming up with good attributes about your partner. You're focusing on those. You're making those primary affection. This is making sure that you embrace, that there's touch involved. He says during date night, this is about learning more about each other during date nights. Ask more open-ended questions uh, like what we mentioned before. Best friends. Who are you mad at right now? Who, who do you love spending time with? Uh, what, what, is a, what is a personal ambition you have in the next six months? It's a little forced. It's a little awkward. It's going to be better for your relationship, I promise. Those are your six hours. Take, oh, the last one. They cut this one out, so you don't have to do this one because that feels the most awkward to me. But it says once a week, be like, hey, what am I doing that drives you nuts? Once a week, just whatever you want to say, I'm open, ready for it. Um, it gives your partner freedom to bring up concerns that they have. Uh, I'm not great at taking criticism, so um, send me an email. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. What does God want us to know with our head? That marriage is a covenant, and that's a different way of relating to one another than we are taught by the world. We need to be thinking about these things differently. With our hands, what does God want us to do? Divorce-proof your marriage, and there's lots of ways to do that. I would encourage you to read. I would encourage you to see someone. I would encourage you to, to work at it. It's going to take some work, as you know, if you have been married for some time. And with our heart, what God wants us to feel is that he wants us to be inspired to move our marriage from malnourishing to flourishing to really uh, think about it in a way that it can be, it doesn't, just, it's, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. And what you have isn't just what you have. It can become better, and God has good plans for it, and God has a, a blessing for it, and so 
take the time to work at it, think about it, pray about it, and uh, make your relationships great. Here's your spiritual practice for this week, your homework, and then I'm going to pray. Do one of these. Pick one, do it. Don't tell your partner, because that's always awkward to me when I'm like, I'm getting ready to do number four. <laughs> Surprise them. They'll be like, wow, really thoughtful this week. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you. Thank you that we can think about these things. Thank you that you have some advice for us. You have wisdom for us. You have a desire for our relationships, that they are good and flourishing, and they help us to be good and flourishing people. We pray now that as we think about relationships, all relationships, you would help us become intentional with them, that you would help us to be thoughtful about them, that we would be honoring to the people around us. That we would learn to love our neighbor as ourself, even if and when our neighbor is sleeping in the bed next to us. Would you help us to love well? And of course we recognize that we cannot do that well without your spirit in us, without your grace for us. So would you help us to experience your Holy Spirit in this moment? Would you help us to be so flooded with your love that we can't help but be loving to the people around us? And we will give you thanks and praise. Table Church, will you pray with me now? The Lord's Prayer, it's on the screen if you need it, saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.